You know, he'd be like, so Tanya, how you doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And yeah. the tears would start. If you talk about how cool or gnarly or kick-ass it was, you're processing that trauma. And honestly, it's like PTSD prevention and you don't even know you're doing it. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. The idea of the show is for me to sit down with medics one at a time, face-to-face, and immerse myself in their accounts of what it's like to do the job. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. It's slow and meandering. What surfaces is relatable and useful. This is the first episode where I visit with a guest who's not a paramedic. However, if anyone appreciates what it's like to be a medic without actually being one, it's this guest, Dr. Tanya Glenn. What I discovered in talking with her is that she might understand some parts of our psyche better than we understand ourselves. As a licensed clinical social worker and with a doctorate in psychology, she's been in practice for over 25 years. She's a leading national clinician in the treatment of PTSD. She specializes in working with emergency responders, the military, and the aviation industry. She's been called a warrior healer, and it's with good reason. I managed to get a face-to-face meeting with her, and she packed a lot of valuable information into our little jam session. We talked about resilience, stress inoculation, peer support teams, and the signs and symptoms of PTSD. We had a similar conversation to the one that you're about to hear eight months ago. And in fact, in that conversation, the seed for this podcast was planted. Because as I was talking with her, or rather when she was talking with me, I kept thinking, ah, every medic should hear this. So please, if, if you can, share it with a friend. I want to welcome you to the show. It's great to be here. I want to tell you the first time I ever heard your name, because I don't think I've ever told you. The story is, I have a gentleman that comes and talks to our graduating uh, students that are about to go out into the field as paramedics. And he is a something like a 30-year paramedic and flight nurse. The topic of the talk that he gives, I named it the top 10 things you would tell a new paramedic. One of his pieces of advice is have a Tanya Glenn in your life. So I was sitting in on this discussion. I'm like, well, I don't have a Tanya Glenn in my life. Like, what's a Tanya Glenn? <laughs> um, and I did some digging and talking to him. And he told me all about all the work that you do. So thank you for all the work that you do. What a huge compliment. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so I, I reached out to some of my paramedic buddies to ask them, you know, what, what do you guys need to know? What do we, if you could um, get Tanya Glenn in a room, what kind of stuff can we can we share with everyone? And probably the most common question we got was, what's normal and what's not normal? In the days following a tough call, what types of symptoms are expected? Just normal, like adjustment to a tough job. And then what types of symptoms are pathological? Okay, so there's sort of two parts to that answer that I want to give you. The first is, you know, it is, of course, very, very normal to see changes in yourself over time in terms of, you know, you become cynical, a little jaded, a little hardened. And that's par for the course. A lot of times in a successful career of a paramedic, you're going to see folks who become just progressively desensitized to certain types of scenes, trauma, you know, whatever that is. And that's good because that keeps you doing what you do. When there's a significant call like a trauma, and you know, when we talk about trauma, we have to remember that it's different for everybody. So what impacts one person may not another, and everybody's interpretation of that event is what determines if it's if it's something we're we're gonna worry about. 
So with trauma, a bad call, one that sticks with you, here's what I tell all of my customers. And, and I do this because I'm a very, very conservative when it comes to people's treatment. And we want to we want to hit the bullseye every single time. We don't ever want to just let people suffer. So you have that bad call, and you go home and you think about it, you know, and you can't get that smell out of your nose, and you can't get those images out of your mind. And, and you replay it like a movie pretty hardcore for, you know, two to three days. What I always tell people is that seven days out, I want that call fading to long-term memory. In other words, you focus on your kids when you're with your kids, not on the call. And you're thinking about other things, not the call all day long, like you were on day one and two. So seven days out, it's fading. The nightmares are slowing down if they haven't stopped already. And then 14 days out, I want that call in your long-term memory. You may never forget it, right? But you experience it almost like it's fading. You don't think about it unless somebody asks you a question or there's something on the news or you know that kind of thing. But banked in your long-term memory and the experience that a lot of first responders say it's, it's fading is where we want it at 14 days. Because if you hit day 30 and you're still re-experiencing it like you were on day one, two, and three, then we're looking at some real potential problems. So I like to nip it in the butt. And I like it at two weeks. That way we don't even approach PTSD and, and some of those things. Now, it, again, it's normal. You'll, you know, everybody retires with their top 10, 15, 20 calls that they'll never, ever, ever forget. And as long as they, they can think about it, but not have like flashbacks and nightmares all the time about it, then you're good to go. Yeah, good. Thank you. So we use the word PTSD a lot. Are there other anxiety disorders? Yes. So there, there is, there are anxiety disorders. And actually, the, the new DSM actually pushed PTSD out of the category of anxiety disorders. You know, you see people having what, what we call panic attacks and, and those types of chronic anxiety disorders. That's not really typically what we see for, for folks. It, it is normal to have, you know, a little bit of anxiety going on shift. You don't sleep well in the station because you're sleeping with, you know, one eye and one ear open. And so there's no normal, normal stress reactions that, that paramedics have. Sometimes there is anxiety about certain types of calls or certain types of, of events and what will happen and we, we can deal with those. Hopefully, that's the kind of situation where we're not actually dealing with, with post-traumatic stress disorder. The other thing about the anxiety is a lot of times what happens is paramedics think that they're having anxiety when, in fact, when they continue to relive a call, they're actually having a fight-or-flight response. And that fight-or-flight response actually feels like anxiety, like a, like a panic attack. Sure. And so when we're able to glean out what's really going on, then we're able to to really hone in on what we need to fix. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so there's a whole gamut. And I I don't want to go too in-depth because I don't want paramedics diagnosing themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> please don't do that. There is that danger. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's it's important to understand that everybody has, you know, you have your baseline level of functioning. And you know how you are day in and day out. And you look at your partner and you know your partner's baseline level of functioning. You know how you know how he or she rolls kind of day in and day out. And what we're looking for is when people aren't the same, when they're not back to normal, when their attitude is different, their coping mechanisms aren't working or they're unhealthy, and people just aren't bouncing back. And you see that in each other, you see it in yourself. And when you feel like you've been pushed to the ground and you can't bounce back from this one event or series of events, that's when that's when I want folks to get help. Mm-hmm. And what does help look like? What are what's your treatment approach? So um, the typical paramedic is uh, fix me yesterday. 
<laughs> which I, I get it. Um, and the other thing that I hear a lot, and, and please don't do this, paramedics all the time say, you know, I've been thinking about calling you for the last year. And I'm like, yeah, you show, so should have called me a year ago. <laughs> it would be a lot easier if we'd done that. Right. So getting help means that you find the right person who understands public safety, who understands the typical day of a paramedic and what's not typical, who really, really understands trauma and burnout and the differences between burnout and depression. Coming to therapy is generally, it's, you know, it's not a forever and everything. It's kind of like physical therapy. You start the process to finish it. You're going to set some goals. You're going to get objectives to reach those goals. You, you Both you and your therapist think is, you know, I call it the plan of attack. And then you're going to you're gonna go out and do some homework. And it's kind of like physical therapy. You know, when they send you home with the stretchy rubber bands that smell bad and they're like, do these stretches 16 times a day? Yep. Yeah. And they can always right. tell when you don't do your homework. Yeah. So same thing when you go to therapy. <laughs> I found that most paramedics really like to do their homework, though, uh -huh. kind of like overkill. So, right. yeah. Can you say what the difference is between you brought up nightmares earlier? Can you differentiate nightmares from night tears? And if one is prognostic of, of PTSD or if one's worse than the other? Nightmares and dreams are normal. We have those. We have dreams every night, even if you don't remember them. So a nightmare is basically it means you're stressed. Your brain is stressed, worried about something. You've experienced some sort of trauma. So what will happen is in a, in a nightmare, your brain in, in the sleep process and, you know, dreams and nightmares happen in rapid eye movement. Your brain is processing, working through, you know, downloading, kind of cleaning out the mess. And so what I tell folks is after a bad call, you're going to have some nightmares. Those are normal. What we're looking for is kind of like that one week mark, two week mark, where we want them diminishing it seven days out and really just done at 14 days out. A night terror is, is significant. So a night terror is generally, it's, I call it a misfire. You're stressed, very stressed brain misfires. And it generates a nightmare in stage three and four, which is deep sleep, right? So in stage three, four is when you are actually you have like you are out, out, you don't dream or have nightmares in stage three, four, but mm -hmm. your brain, your brain misfires, right? So you generate a nightmare in stage three or four, and you can't wake up. And so what people will do is they'll exhibit signs of distress because they can't wake up from this horrible thing that's happening in their mind. They'll get up, they may be combative, they may be calling for their partner, they may mm -hmm. be yelling commands and, and those kinds of things. It's pretty intense. And then what will happen is after they transition out of the night terror, there's a brief moment where most people wake up, they don't remember it, and they just kind of climb back into bed, and they go on with their sleep cycles. And they typically, the the producer of the night terror won't even remember it the next day, mm -hmm. but the loved one in the bed next to them is like, honey, you were you know, yelling this and doing this and saying this. The thing about night terrors is it's it's pretty normal after a really hardcore critical incident to have a couple. Mm -hmm. And I give people like one or two. But if they continue, we're coming in for treatment. And I do the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing for trauma and, night, and nightmares and night terrors and all that. But one or two, and then I want it to pass, mm -hmm. right? But if it continues... Uh, we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to hit hit that that trauma. And number two, um, we're going to work on some sleep hygiene issues. We're going to lock up weapons. Mm -hmm. We're going to, if you have little kids who climb into bed when they've had a bad dream, we're going to get them to go in on the other side of the bed. We're just going to do some really kind of safety precautions until we get this trauma resolved. Right. So I had a, a EMS partner once who would occasionally have night tears and it's alarming. Yeah. yeah. It's really scary, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you feel so bad because you're just you helpless to... There's a yeah. lot of confusion. Yeah, absolutely. The advice I've given paramedic students from the day I started teaching 
Um, when you have a tough call, you're supposed to externalize it. You're supposed to journal about it, talk about it with uh, the people that were on the call, with a partner, uh, not a, a romantic partner, but with your partner at work. Um, is that therapeutic? And is there a time window in which you should externalize for it to be therapeutic? Absolutely. I always tell my peer support teams in training, get them talking, keep them talking, right? Because get them talking, keep them talking right away is actually within the first 48 hours. So trauma gets basically trauma that becomes PTSD gets captured in your frontal lobe of your brain and your frontal lobe just can't process it like normal. And so it captures it and it hangs on to it and it tries to process it later on. Within the first 48 hours, right, your brain is really wired to process trauma. And how we do it is we talk about it, we write about it, we laugh about it, we joke about it, whatever it is, however it comes out, right? If you talk about how cool or gnarly or kick-ass it was with your partner, with peer support, whoever, you're processing that trauma. And honestly, it's like PTSD prevention and you don't even know you're doing it, right? Mm -hmm. So that one of the biggest components is I train peer support teams to get in there basically get them talking, keep them talking. If they're laughing, let them, let them roll, right? Just let that process happen because it's beautiful. It is absolutely amazing. And has a, has an expiration date. So I like, I like get them talking, keep them talking within the first 48 hours that, you know, that's when your brain is really wired to process that trauma Mm -hmm. by about five or six days out. You've, you've kind of, you've kind of passed that window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. The worst thing though, is that people suck it up and walk it off because that has never worked. And so walk it off, get over it is is basically saying that you're not allowed to talk about it, we don't talk about it, and then what you do is you internalize it and then and then basically things progress down that path that you don't want them to. I think a lot of medics would chew on it. They're rehashing it in their own brain, but if it uh, may not have a social component, they're not sharing it with another person. Is it important for another person to be there? What I mean is in the first 48 hours, if they have tons of alone time, they're introverted. Mm -hmm. They're taking walks, they're thinking about the call, but they're not actually truly externalizing anything. Do you think it's as therapeutic? I think it can be, you know, introverts, they process their, their, you know, their thoughts, their, their, those images in a, in their own way. And so if it's that you don't want to verbalize it, but you you walk, you work out, you go for a run, and you just let your mind go, mm-hmm. and you work through that call, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. What I don't want is for people to drink it off. Right. right. So if you are the kind that you kind of you kind of hold things close to your chest, and that's just how, how you are, then certainly working out, you know, going for a walk, just processing through, thinking about it, just having some time to allow your brain to start to work through it. And knowing that if you're getting stuck, then it's a good idea to, to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, everybody's everybody's different. But don't don't go drink it off. Right. Don't sweep it under the rug. Exactly. Dedicate some time to it. Exactly. One question I got, the question was, uh, for you, was how does a medic know that they don't have a problem lurking? Uh, meaning they're, they're a medic, they go run calls all day, every day, and they feel perfectly fine. And for the last five years, they've been in EMS, and they don't notice any um, distress. <laughs> but they're worried they're shoving all this stuff into some black, black box, and it's going to suddenly crack open or something. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible that they're not experiencing any distress, and there is no pathology there? And the opposite, is there a little box that might crack? So I always say, if it's not 
broken, don't fix it, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're okay, and every incident that I've I've been to, large, small, whatever, I've said, you know, if you're good, you're good. Let me know if that changes. Right. right. What we see, especially these days, because, you know, the days of, you know, EMS conferences being sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there's a, we're, we're kind of growing out of that a little mm-hmm. bit. And we're looking at, oh, let's look at fitness and mental mm-hmm. fitness and resilience and <laughs> working out better. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think as more paramedics are living a healthier lifestyle, mm-hmm. it's it's actually translating to a more resilient individual, both mentally and physically. And when you are rolling through and you're good and you feel good, that is awesome, right? Your brain is going to give you a little bit of a, like a little early distant warning if you're not, and then you pay attention to that, right? But there's, it's not like people just cruise through a a 20 year career in EMS, and then just one day just lose it, right? right? So you're going to notice some things, some changes, or your spouse is going to say, hey, honey, you know, what is this? You know, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. That's typically what we see is, is very often people roll through their careers, and they're like, Am I sick because I'm okay? And it's right. like, no, <laughs> keep going. Guilt. There's some guilt that goes with that. Yeah. I I can't identify any symptoms um, that I had. There's so much um, attention to it. You're kind of like, am I am I all right? Yeah. So much the opposite problem. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of spouses um, and friends and family of medics, what are those early indicators that they're in some distress? Well, the biggest thing, and I hear this from from loved ones of paramedics all the time, is is they, you have that look when you walk in the door. That means that something's different. You know, usually you come home and you look a certain way, you walk in the door and you have what they call the look. And that's uh, that whether it's a thousand yard stare or distress, or you can, you can feel that energy when they walk in the door that maybe they've had a rough shift um, or a bad call. Typically, the more intuitive loved ones, especially couples, they'll typically learn how to kind of give that paramedic space or sit them down and talk about it right away, depending on whatever that person needs, whatever their style is. So you see a lot of, aha, I know that look, I'm going to, I'm going to give him or her 30 minutes by himself or herself or, or we're going to sit, we're going to hash this out right now. Right. Then what you'll notice after that is, is just, again, that baseline level that people kind of function at, and you're going to notice some changes there. Like their sleep patterns are off, their eating patterns are different. Um, they're, they're really preoccup- preoccupied with that call. There's a sense of um, maybe anxiety about going back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to start to see and feel those things. You may hear some nightmares going on, but it's, it's, it, it will definitely, I always tell loved ones, trust your instinct, right? Our instincts are beautiful and they tell us everything we need to know. If your instincts are like, hey, you're, you're not okay with this call, let's, let's get this addressed. Then, then that's, that's the, but the, they'll, they'll be able to identify some really specific things in terms of, of changes in the baseline. Okay. Yeah. We teach that to paramedics too, about family members calling for their kids. If the mom says something's not right, yeah. something's not right. Exactly. What is your personal connection to PTSD? How did this become your life and your career passion? Well, so I had this really great childhood and I had an awesome <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> I had really kick-ass parents who did a tremendous job um, and I was very protected. So I actually was, uh, it was halfway through my master's degree. Um, I watched this horrible debacle happen in Waco with the ATF, like most of us watched it on TV. And I... I couldn't 
stand it. Like I couldn't, I, I, and I went to school the next day and I told my professors that this is what I needed to do. And they thought I was nuts. One of them said, actually, she, she was mistaken. She's like, oh, you're going to help people like the Branch Davidians. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm going to help people like the ATF. Mm-hmm. And she said, wow, that's crazy because they're really mean and they carry guns. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so um, that was that was my calling. And at that point, I knew that this is the kind of work I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I created uh, my second year internship at Brackenridge Hospital Emergency Room. Back then, they, they hadn't had any intern in years. And I went to work. And I just, I, I gravitated towards public safety and trauma. And it's just my calling. I was told in grad school that I'm a little too type A to be a counselor. Um, So I just found my patient population that works. Yeah, that's (laughs) a good match. Yeah, here I am. (laughs) Very cool. Well, thank you for all your work. Thank you. Thanks. We talk, there's a lot of talk about resilience. And so you, well, just to back up. So you were saying, you know, after a traumatic event, the very best thing to do is get them talking and keep them talking. The step prior to that, I think is, I guess the only word is stress inoculation or resilience. How would a medic do, how does a medic build resilience? So when I teach resilience, which I love to teach, right. And resilience has kind of taken over the whole stress management, you know, term, which to me, stress management has always sounded kind of pansy. Mm -hmm. Um, But resilience is about strength. It's about, you know, and I love that. So when I teach resilience, I call them my fun sucker slides. And I'm like, here they are. And we talk about nutrition, hydration, sleep, Uh you know, all the things that make you who you are. We talk about morality. We talk about faith. We talk about, we talk about lifestyle choices and, and being healthy and Mm -hmm. not defying your need for downtime and that ability to, to unplug and disconnect and turn off your iPhones and all that stuff. So it starts with a happy, healthy person in a, in a healthy lifestyle. Then as people become trained and they go through EMT basic and, you know, intermediate and they get onto paramedic is to have the, the best instructors are the ones who can navigate their students through what they're ready for at the time. Now that's, that's easier said than done because sometimes there are calls when you're, <laughs> when you're a student and it's like, wow. And I end up coming out to your call because it was yeah. so bad. Right. Mm-hmm. But we try to gradually and incrementally expose people to what they're ready for and and exposing them to that, that stress inoculation and the ability to take folks and provide sort of that graduated level of, of training and exposure is one of the best things you can do. Someone asked this question. I thought it's, it's interesting for me because I, as a paramedic, professor, I have students come into the program from day one with a diagnosis of PTSD. These are often like military veterans that want to parlay their skills from the military into something really, really useful, like being a paramedic. And we want them there and we want to encourage them to be there. What do you have to say to someone who starts with PTSD to enter a field that you already know you're going to be encountering stressful environments? I would say that the best thing you can do, the best investment that you can make in yourself for your next career in EMS is to get your PTSD conquered while you're in school, you know, before you start school, whenever, whenever you have time to do it, get it, get it conquered really, truly. So people with PTSD, and I've worked with combat medics and Navy corpsmen who came back from tour number one with PTSD 
and we treat it, we conquer it, we get it resolved, and they go back for tour number two, and tour number two is twice as bad as tour number one, and they do way better because we have trained their brain to process trauma. They also know how to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So they actually fare better having conquered PTSD. So what I would say is, is you don't have to suck it up and, and drive through this. Let's deal with it so you can be that much better. And then the other thing that people do with that kind of wisdom, and wisdom causes gray hair, and conquering PTSD is a lot of wisdom, <laughs> is then they look out for other people and they recognize it. They're, they're, they've got this barometer mm-hmm. and they see it in others. And then they pay it forward by, they, they, by getting help right away for people that they work with. So as long as they come in and deal with it, they're, they're going to have a much happier, healthier career. I love that. I Me love too. that. Because I've often thought of PTSD as a diagnosis that was a permanent one. And I love you talking about conquering it um, because that gives me the sense that it can be a temporary problem. Absolutely. I think the the permanent idea came from our Vietnam veterans because nobody knew what they were doing back then on how to treat it. I mean, I've worked with Vietnam veterans who <laughs> in the family brief, their wives were told if they were just better wives and this wouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh yeah. my gosh. Like we, we did such a disservice to them and because they never got better. I think the impression was coming into the you know eighties and nineties that PTSD is permanent. We have so many tools in our toolbox, powerful tools that help people conquer this and become better, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing to watch this transformation and it doesn't take long. And that's, that's the beauty is that you're in, you deal with it, you're out, you go live, and you're happy, and you, you do. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And when you talk about your treatment approaches, one of them I know is the EMDR, eye movement uh, desensitization. You go for it. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> Can you say more about that? How it works? Absolutely. So it was developed in the early 90s. Uh, Dr. Francine Shapiro uh, sort of stumbled on it. She was, uh, the story goes, that she was walking in a park, scanning the horizon, thinking about something that traumatized her. And she noticed that the more she scanned the horizon, the more the images started to fade. And when I first heard about this, I'm like, no way. And fortunately, I had a preceptor who's like, no, no, this is really valid. Go through this training. My first day of training was April 19th, 1995, which is the day of the Murrah bombing in Oklahoma City. And my first actual patient I did it on was two weeks later. It was an Oklahoma City firefighter who went in the Murrah building and found the daycare. Mm. And I trust me, I was 26 years old. I was scared to death to do it, but he needed it so bad. And I watched this transformation. What EMDR does is it basically unlocks the synapses in your frontal lobe and it gets your brain to push and process the images, the sight, smell, sounds, and along with those, the emotions that are attached to this trauma. And it basically gets your brain to unlock it and download it and process it and push it into your long-term memory mm-hmm. in the course of a couple of hours. It is incredible. I absolutely love this technique. It's fast. It's effective. You're in complete control. It's not hypnosis. We're not going to hook anything up to your your brain. There's no probes or electrodes, mm-hmm. you know. And and paramedics say all the time, "I wish I had done this sooner. If I if I'd only known, I would have done this years ago." And when the brain, what it does really, it taps into the brain's ability to heal itself. It taps into the brain's resilience. Mm-hmm. And when the frontal lobe allows the, the images to push and process, the, the part that gets damaged by PTSD is your hippocampus. It actually grows back mm-hmm. and because it can generate new neural pathways. And when that happens, then it stops telling your amygdala to fire these fight or flight responses all the time. So it's there when you need it, but you're not constantly, constantly triggered. 
it's like a whole like like a, a rewiring of your brain and it's phenomenal mm-hmm. phenomenal i love this technique on average how many sessions would you need of that so it was originally designed one and done um, and that's typically how I roll. Typically, we'll do we'll do a long one, one and done. Sometimes there's need for a follow up. Um, these days with managed cares, there managed care, excuse me, there there are clinicians who do it kind of week to week to week. But most paramedics are like, you know, they're just getting rolling by 50 minutes, you know, and so to shut a person down at 50 minutes is not really, it's it's kind of counterintuitive, especially with public safety folks. So I like to do like when I have someone, I block the whole morning or the whole afternoon for them. And we clean out the mess. And mm. it is amazing to watch this transformation. And if we need to do a follow-up, like a cleanup session, we can. Mm-hmm. And then you're done. Honestly, when I first started doing this, I had to catch up to my patients. They were progressing so fast that I was discharging them. And I was like, wait, I'm not ready for you to go, yeah. but you're done. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes kind of this, wait for me. But no. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. So Well, speaking of your, your response to their therapy, how do you do it? How do you do it all day, every day, thinking about other people's trauma? So I work out every day. Mm-hmm. Okay, every morning I get up. If I have the flu, I don't work out. But every morning I work out. Um, when I travel, I always, always bring my workout clothes. That's how every day starts for me. That's when I process and download. I do have outstanding people in my life that I can talk to, okay, to, to practice what I preach, to, to process and download that way. But the other thing is this. So I had really great training. And I had a really great experience at Brackenridge that prepped me to see and deal with a lot of stuff. My training was incremental, was, you know, each step along the way, I got increasingly exposed to, to you know, stuff. And so between being resilient, working out and having great training and a lot of support in my life. But, you know, the biggest thing is this, my patients, my patients are motivated to get well. They want to get well fast. They have the courage to, to trust me enough to do this because I have people who they tend to move very quickly through and conquer and go back out and do, and they're happy and healthy. To me, that is the best thing. If I had a patient population that didn't want to get well, or that was just stuck, I don't, I'm not sure I could do this much trauma work, Right. but people I work with, they recover and, and they're like their successes and their victories and their happy, healthy lives. I feel that. I feel, mm-hmm. it's like it's kind of like we're family you know and I feel their success I feel their victories mm-hmm. my walls I don't know if you noticed walking down the hall here my walls are full of my my clients victories peer support teams and you know and all the things that that represent all the things we do to conquer trauma it's it's like a celebration every day mm-hmm. I love it thanks <laughs> so you were at ground zero mm-hmm. how many days weeks after so I did four tours I was up there September 18th doing scene support. Then I went back in October and December and then the one year anniversary. Honestly, the hardest part about that experience was leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, you go, you do a week at a time. The reason you do a week at a time is because they want you to come back and they don't want to burn you out. Yeah. But uh, every out brief, I would sit across from a lieutenant from NYPD and it's the last day and you know, he'd be like, so Tanya, how you doing? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And yeah. the tears would start. And I was like, I can stay, I can stay, I need, I can stay. And he kept saying every time, we know we'd love to have you stay, but we really need you to go home so we can have you come back. Right. It was the most meaningful work like ever. Like it was, yeah. it was really amazing. So who were you talking to? Uh, my, my focus up there was NYPD. Mm-hmm. I was brought up there by their peer support unit. And uh, they were really fantastic. I'm gonna take your picture. So. <laughs> 
CISM has, um, there are a few people that have said that there's no scientific evidence that it's helpful. Uh, do you think it's helpful? So I have seen it work very well, right? The key is, is that, and somehow I think this got lost in translation in all the trainings. When teams go in and they apply one intervention, generally a debriefing, to every situation, you're not going to win. So what they've left out is the need to triage, right? And the way I triage my peer support teams is like a target with a bullseye in the middle, Mm -hmm. right? So the bullseye is the direct impact and the next ring and, and communications. The next ring is the people who maybe showed up later on scene who weren't there during the, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the next ring is the people who are on duty who maybe showed up even later. And then the next people or the people who are on duty who never even saw it. Yeah. And you have to triage very well. And then you have to look at who needs what, when, Mm -hmm. right? So the CISM, the, the international critical incident stress foundation started, you know, doing these, these debriefings and diffusings and all that stuff in the late eighties. And they kind of got caught with their pants down because it was like, Hey, was that good? And paramedics and like, yeah, it was good. It was good. I, you know, that was good. So I got, I got to sit down and talk it out. Right. Yeah. Then, you know, a lot of clinicians started to say, well, show me the research. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, and there was none. Mm-hmm. The biggest mistake that the teams make is they don't triage and they don't really just take their time and look at who needs what, when. Right. So it's a lot of moving parts after an incident. And I always, always encourage teams just slow down, take your time, don't get in a rush, mm-hmm. right? Look at who needs what when. Sometimes for the first couple of days, they just need like some water and some Gatorade and a ride home. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. CISM emphasizes people coming together and talking about it in a big group, right? Yes. Is that just in the interest of time so we don't have to have individual one-on-one conversations or was the idea that it's therapeutic? The idea was that it's therapeutic, but what you can, you really run a risk of vicariously traumatizing someone else. Mm-hmm. because they didn't see and hear all that. Uh, and yeah. that's happened, right? Mm, interesting. So there was a debriefing in Dallas once and the paramedic started and he was talking about, you know, pediatric CPR and blood up to his elbows. And the next person who talked, this is a mandatory debriefing, police, fire, EMS communications, they're all there. The next person to talk was a Dallas officer, police officer who was two blocks away directing traffic away from the scene who never saw anything. Right. And he was really unhappy that he had to listen to, you know, again, that's a, it's an example of why pull everyone together in a big group. People don't talk well in big groups, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when, I, when I train teams, I'm like, the more you kind of have that gift of gab, like you're kind of just shooting the breeze, right. the better, right? right? Instead of these awkward questions, mm-hmm. sitting in a circle, I never put chairs in a circle, right. ever, ever. And I learned that in Oklahoma City. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. I got contacted by a police officer about, about a month and a half ago. And he's like, hey, I'm really sorry for the way we treated you in Oklahoma City. City. I'm just gone through some stuff in my life and I'm making amends. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? You taught us what not to do. <laughs> so, I guess it's all perspective, right? Yeah. Well, we've learned a lot yeah. since then. It's a while yeah. ago. Absolutely. So my thing is just take your time, slow down, don't move the furniture in people's stations, just work the crowd, see who needs what, when. Mm-hmm. Start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, clothing, shelter, safety, you know, and then, and then work your way through it. Don't get in a rush and don't feel like you have to slap one intervention on every situation. Yeah. Yeah, I like that response. <laughs> That's kind of how I see it. I've been, I've done some critical incident stress debriefings as a medic, and mm, I don't know if it was therapeutic or not. Mm. I, I don't know. It's yeah. hard to tell. Yeah. yeah, but it didn't feel organic. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. But you know, a peer support member meeting you on the dock as you roll up, completely different. No, yeah, handing you water and Gatorade and a big old hug. Right, right. That's totally 
just, I mean, that's, that's what humans need. That's what we need. Any other advice to a paramedic student, things that they can do right or warnings of what not to do wrong? The only thing I would add, in addition to everything else that we've talked about, and I love talking to students because I can really plant this seed. Keep your friends who have normal eight to five jobs, (laughs) who don't do what we do, who aren't police, fire, EMS, keep those friends. And I tell them, you will get out into the world. They work eight to five. You work funky shifts. You will have a wicked sense of humor and a really weird vocabulary, (laughs) but hang out with them to remind you that the rest of the world is not what you see every day. Right. Yeah. I think in a in a rough shift, I noticed this from Brackenridge, right? You know, I used to clock out at seven AM and walk out into Austin, Texas, fully expecting to see people running around stabbing and shooting each other because that's all we had all night, right? <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, the perspective is mine that's wrong. You know, right. it's like, you know, life is the birds are chirping and you know, it's yeah. Sunday morning. Keeping that balance is huge. Keep your friends, keep your life, keep your hobbies right? Keep your exercise regimen, all the things that make you balanced and healthy now, your faith, your family, your friends, Mm -hmm. keep those things, right? Yes, hang out with your EMS buddies once in a while too, right? Mm -hmm. Because you need that, you need that, you know, you need to tell your war stories and have fun, right? But keep the life you have now, because at the end of the day, when you hang up this hat and you're done with your EMS career, you need to have a life outside the job. Yeah. Good advice. Mm. Very good advice. Thank you again for your time. Absolutely. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for doing this. Well, it's stuff that we all, you know, things like CISM, and we're all talking about it. uh, So it's really nice to talk to an expert that has an informed opinion about it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Tanya Glenn, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, My website is www.taniaglenn.com. All my contact information's on there. At the bottom, at the I think at the top of my bio, there's email Tanya. You can email me, and then uh, my my number is on there as well. Awesome, perfect. Thank you. Thanks a lot.